Three, push their hot buttons and stay focused on the benefits your product or service offers to them. Example, with the challenge you face, it seems clear that six of our machines are exactly what you need. You will reduce costs, speed up productivity, and most important, relieve a lot of stress for quite a few people. I'm checking on how fast we can move on this one. Four, use a personal close. Example, once again, it was great meeting you. I have a few ideas about some other productivity issues that I know you will like. Here's a bad follow-up letter. Dear Joe, thank you for your time. I know how busy you are. Our machines are great. With our strength, we have become great. We're great. I really want your business, and I'm willing to work hard to get it. You won't regret buying from us. I will call you soon to sell you some more. Sincerely, Bernie. Of course, this is an exaggeration, but many sales letters can be boiled down to exactly this. They begin with an opening that is not personal and, in fact, belittles the salesperson. As stated, never apologize for taking their time. You must feel that your time is also valuable and they are lucky to be meeting with you because you are bringing them important insights and solutions. However, don't put all the emphasis on you and your products or services as this type of letter does. Second, this letter is focused on the sale, not the customer. You can tell prospects all day long how great you are, but unless you know why they buy, you aren't going to make the sale. Focus on them and the benefits your product or service would have for them. Third, there is nothing in here to endear you to this client. Get personal. Great follow-up letters have more than a little personal touch. Remind the prospect of a laugh you shared with him or something he said that really stuck with you. I once pulled off the miracle of catching the senior vice president of Xerox on the telephone during his lunch hour. We talked for an hour, and my boss at the time kept coming in and giving me the hard stare, thinking I was on a personal call. It sounded like a personal call, laughing and talking about life. My boss became hotter and hotter, especially when I waved him away like, stop bothering me. When he heard me get off the phone, he called me into his office and said, Who the hell was that? You were on the phone for an hour. To which I responded proudly, That was the senior vice president of Xerox. He continued, What in the world do you have to say that would keep you on the phone for an hour? And here I was, amazed that I got deep enough rapport that this executive wanted to stay on the phone with me for an hour. I then wrote a follow-up letter filled with personal stuff about the conversation. This same boss snatched the letter from me and said it was unprofessional to go into all this personal information. He then rewrote my letter, taking out all the personal references and made it similar to the example of a bad follow-up letter I just gave you. Later, when he went home for the day, I used my original letter and sneaked to fax it off to the client. I had many a battle with this particular boss. That is, until Xerox came in as the biggest sale in the history of the company. After I brought in many more large sales like this, the boss finally let me do things my way. But in the entire time I worked at that company, no one ever asked me how I was bringing in so many large advertisers. If this company had organized the workshops described in Chapter 3, everyone would have learned all my insights. You'll find that top producers are eager to share. I certainly was. If you sell business to consumer, you may not have the personal interaction that you would in a business-to-business -business play, but you still need a personalized follow-up letter. Email makes this quite easy. I bought two suits a few days ago. The salesperson didn't ask me a lot of questions, but I mentioned that I'm a public speaker, so he asked for my card. 
When I got home later that evening, to my shock and surprise, there was an email from him. Unfortunately, it was almost word for word the bad follow-up example given, but hey, I was impressed nevertheless. That's an example of retail selling where follow-up can be instituted. I'm not sure if this is the policy of the store, but it impressed me. If there is a salesperson involved, as in the suit example, use the structure I've provided. The sales rep should have asked me a lot more questions than his follow-up could have capitalized on my answers, beginning with some personal note. Make clients feel good about themselves. Let's say he had asked me what I speak about. He then could have said something like, I loved hearing about the topics you cover in your lectures. It must be exciting to be able to share such great information with business owners. He then could have added value, saying, I'm sure those suits will make you look great on stage. Now imagine if this suit store had a club membership, or even better, a wardrobe analysis or dress for success program. Then every email that followed could provide information of value to me, keeping me updated with the latest fashion insights. This is applicable for practically any type of retail situation outside of mass marketers. If you sell cars, you could send updates on driving tips, safety tips, or maintenance insights on how to preserve the mechanical integrity of your vehicle. Create a relationship with the buyer. If you sell jewelry, you could send information on keeping it clean, what types of jewelry increase in value with age, the latest fashion, and insights on what to wear with what. Be an expert in your area and offer excellent insights to your buyers. Let's say you have a cosmetics counter at a fine department store where they do makeovers and have a wonderful opportunity to bond with clients. If you've ever had a makeup session at, say, Nordstrom, have you received a follow-up from them? Have you ever received makeup tips from these companies? Have they tried to make you brand loyal so that you only want a specific brand of makeup? If you sell boats, how about boating tips, safety tips, and suggestions on places to take your boat? All valuable stuff. There's no area of business where you can't build a far stronger bond with your client with outstanding follow-up. Even mass merchandisers like Walmart could go a step further, bringing news and insights about products, consumer alerts, and things of value, not just selling, but offering something that the client will value. For example, as of this writing, Walmart is on a big initiative to offer more organic foods. Why not send emails offering insights on organic foods? There are probably many studies on this that would be of interest and value to buyers. And every cashier at every register could give an ethical bribe to get email addresses. If you give us your email address, we will send you a gift certificate through email for $5, good in any Walmart. Surely it would be worth $5 to reach every Walmart buyer via email. Plus, customers might make a special trip to use the coupon before it expires, and then spend more money buying something they might not have bought in the first place. Think of the cost savings of reaching folks over the Internet instead of through flyers, mailers, television, or radio. Imagine the power of having 100 million email addresses. But rather than just using them to send sales notices, send things that get opened, things of value. And then you can also mention a great sale. Walmart goes to great pains to offer lower prices than anyone else. Imagine getting an email that reads, how we negotiated with Sony to get you this amazing offer. Then the email is like an article showing how Walmart negotiates on behalf of the consumer to keep prices low. Such emails could blend items of interest with sales information. 
No matter what you sell and to whom, great follow-up is something every company can do a heck of a lot better. This is a new world we're in, and so many companies are missing these opportunities. Exercise. Create a follow-up letter that is a model for your product or service. If you're a mass-oriented company, do a workshop on education-based marketing ideas to get those emails opened. If you are business-to-business, -business, use the format provided to compose a template for your first follow-up email. If you are more salesperson-to-client direct, like retail suits or jewelry, create a template to guide your sales reps in doing their follow-up. The following steps are especially for direct sales efforts, where a salesperson is trying to build a long-term relationship with a buyer, but many of the concepts may stimulate ideas for a mass audience as well. Follow-up step two, make the first follow-up call. The follow-up call should come right after the letter. It should offer something of value, something that doesn't necessarily have to benefit your company directly. You're trying to bond with your client, so this follow-up call does not have to be selling them anything. This is absolutely critical if you sell business to business. You may call and say, Hey, Jim, I thought more about your challenges, and I think I may have a great idea for you. For business to consumer, it may be a reminder call, or offering further education, or a chance to bring a friend to a special event. If you're business to business and you had a good meeting, you should now be working your way into your client's staff as someone bringing enough value that they let you into their world. This is how I became top producer at every company. I became such a valued contributor, it was like I was on my client's staff. I helped them find talent, design more effective ads, do better at trade shows, hook up with other companies that can help them, and so on. They'd say, let's call Chet and get his input on this one. I had total control of my accounts and never lost one to a competitor. On the other hand, if you had a bad meeting, monster follow-up is your only hope. For business to consumer, your best follow-up call offer may be something educational. If you sell bedding, what are five tips to better sleeping? If you sell furniture, can you offer decorating tips? The business-to-consumer examples may not require a telephone call, but by continually establishing yourself as the expert, you will become part of your client's decision-making process in your arena. Your clients may call you for advice on whether they should buy a new suit from your suit store or what they should order from your catering business to serve at their next dinner party. Also, think of the increase in referrals. I've never had a relationship with a suit salesperson, but there are suit salespeople who are such experts they are constantly recommended by their clients to others. Experts will get three times more referrals than salespeople. Exercise. What is going to be your standard second follow-up after the buyer buys? What script will you use for a phone call? Write down some ideas. What can you offer that's valuable to the client? Follow-up step three, share something amusing or of personal interest. As you learned in Chapter 10, you are establishing rapport throughout the sales process so you can use similar approaches. As mentioned in that section, send an amusing cartoon or article that you know will be of interest to them. Even if it does nothing else but make them smile and laugh, it's building that bond and keeping that top-of-mind status. So send something of interest to them every month. Don't sell, just schmooze. Exercise. What is going to be your standard third follow-up after the buyer buys or after that first meeting? 
Think of your top clients. What can you send them that would amuse or interest them? Write a note that you could send with it that will keep you in their top of mind. Follow-up step four. Throw a party, share a meal, and bond like crazy. If you're business-to-business -business or business-to-consumer, throwing parties is one of the best ways to bond. Refer back to Chapter 7 to see exactly how to do this. Sharing a meal with your clients is another great way to bond. Here's the scale of bonding effectiveness. Breakfast, good rapport. Lunch, good rapport. Dinner, great rapport. You must ease into their lives. Don't be too pushy. You must judge what the appropriate invitation is for your situation. One way to do this is to offer a bonus. Here's a script you can use. I did some research about your industry and learned some interesting things. If we can get together for a breakfast or lunch, I'll take you through some of this information. Exercise. What is going to be your standard fourth follow-up after the buyer buys? If it's going to be a meal, how will you invite her? Write your phone script now. If you're business to consumer, what else could you offer your clients? An accountant or financial planner may offer a quarterly breakfast to educate clients on great strategies to keep and grow their wealth. What can you offer that's valuable to your clients? Follow-up Step 5. Send another fax, email, letter, card. If you get top-of-mind awareness, you need to never let it go. With unceasing follow-up, you'll never lose a client to a competitor. If you've just had a meal with your client or she's attended a party or event you've sponsored, follow up immediately with another letter. Here's an example. Dear Gail, you make a great lunch guest. I wish all my clients had your sense of humor. I was intrigued by your thoughts on direct mail, so I've asked for some further research. I'll let you know when it comes in. Meanwhile, stay away from those anchovies. Regards, Kevin. These letters are short and interesting. Be personal and complimentary, and tell them what the next step will be in your relationship. Kevin's letter to Gail tells us that he'll take the next step by doing some extra research for her, and let her know when it comes in. At that point, he has set himself up to share another meal with her so he can present that information to her. Exercise. What is going to be your standard fifth follow-up after the buyer buys? Write a letter that would be the perfect follow-up to a meal, party, or gathering. Follow-up step six. Plan something fun that can include the family. If you're business-to-business business and your clients are big enough to warrant it, you can invite your clients to join you in fun activities such as boating, tennis, hot air ballooning, or scuba diving. I've done all of these and more. The more memorable the experience, the cooler it can be. The more likely the client will not only go, but will talk about it to others. You're becoming part of their lives. At a convention in Hawaii, we rented a catamaran and took 30 clients out for a cruise with drinks and food. It was an awesome bonding experience. I had five salespeople with me, and we bought wild-looking cardboard sunglasses that had palm trees coming out of them. Then we took photos of all our clients wearing them and passed them around at the trade show. At another trade show, where clients are all in one place, we had a gambling night and made paper money with a photo of a different client on each bill. They got such a charge out of those fake dollars that they took them home to show their families. You could take clients to see a play or have a picnic. If you're business to consumer, you could throw mass parties or buy blocks of tickets to a comedy club, sporting event, or concert. The goal is to become part of clients' lives. Look for something exciting that you can do together. 
It might be your nature to do these things, but if it's not, or if you have salespeople, you need to build them into procedures. Exercise. What is going to be your standard sixth follow-up? List ten fun events you could do with your clients and their families. Write a letter or phone script you could use to invite your clients to these events. Follow-up step seven. Offer something to help their business. Can you be the king or queen of networking? Great companies are always finding ways to help their clients succeed. Can you hook up two clients to form a referral network? When we sold advertising, we would take up-and-coming companies and get them together with much larger companies. This often resulted in relationships that were of value to both players. For that reason, my clients always took my calls, always. Since they never knew what cool new thing I was going to offer, they always welcomed and even looked forward to my calls. Be a resource. Can you provide an idea to help your client succeed? Put helping the client above all else. Perhaps you can sell more product or services in the process. Exercise. What is going to be your standard seventh follow-up? Think of your top clients. What could you do for them to help them improve their businesses? Are there ways that you could connect two or more of them that would be beneficial for everyone? Follow-up step eight. Send another fax, email, letter, card. Your client needs to hear from you often so that you become permanently bonded. Keep sending follow-up notes and jokes. If you become best friends with your clients, it will be natural to keep doing these things. Exercise. What is going to be your standard eighth follow-up? Write another letter that you could send after you've helped them improve their business in some way. Follow-up step nine. Offer more help to succeed. What else can you do to help your clients succeed? Perhaps you could take them to a seminar or give a seminar at their location. You could give them a training course on some topic they are having trouble with or that would help their business. You could help them find new personnel or alert them to important trends in their market. We are working with a restaurant chain that is offering business owners lunch and learns as a way to bond better with companies in their area. This gives them an excuse to call business owners and invite them to something cool. If you feel that sales training, marketing training, or management training would be valuable to your client, and you can get a good group together, or even offer something over the web, you will find many training companies willing to provide you with their content as a way to gain more exposure. Mine certainly can. By this ninth follow-up step, you are becoming a valuable asset and trusted confidant to your clients. This breeds remarkable customer loyalty. So that customers will feel like they are engaging in a personal betrayal if they buy from a competitor. Loyalty gives you unequaled control over market share and the inside track on everything your customer is thinking. Since it's so expensive to gain new clients today, what can you do to establish an unbreakable bond? Exercise. What's your ninth follow-up procedure? Write down the types of seminars or training courses that you could give them. What could you do that would lock you in as a valuable asset and trusted confidant? Follow-up step 10. The ultimate follow-up. Invite them to your home or be invited to theirs. When you have them in your home or they have you in theirs, you know you have done fantastic follow-up. Here are some revealing quotes from top producers on the importance of this step. Every important client I have has dined in my home. Half the people at my wedding were my clients.
From their dreams to their hobbies to their children's hobbies, I know everything about my top clients. Exercise. What is going to be your standard tenth follow-up procedure? How will you invite clients to your home? What can you do at your home that sounds too irresistible to refuse? Can you put on an art show and get a local gallery to come and put its artwork all over your house? Can you challenge a local restaurant to prepare a gourmet feast for your private dinner party? Write a letter or a phone script that would be appropriate for your top client. Conclusion: Bonding is everything. Your ultimate goal is that all of your biggest clients also become your best friends. Become involved in their lives and in the success of their businesses. Make it your personal mission to help them succeed. The bottom line is that you need to do follow-up, or you will be mediocre. With a fantastic structured follow-up, you will propel yourself so far above your competitors that they won't be able to touch you or your clients. Twelve. All systems go. Setting goals, measuring effectiveness. And activating your master plan. Goal setting and measuring effectiveness is the twelfth core skill area of the ultimate sales machine, and it's designed to soup up all eleven that come before it. According to the ultimate sales machine mindset, setting goals is not simply about writing them down periodically, although that is a part of it, but about mastering your focus so that achieving those goals happens quickly and automatically. This chapter will help you to not only improve your business, but live a healthier and happier life. As you've learned throughout this book, mastering anything is not about doing four thousand new things, but doing twelve things four thousand times. To master your business, you will no doubt go through each of the competencies in this book again and again, each time seeing more and more improvement and growth in your business. You can't be a master at all of these skills instantly, but setting periodic goals will speed the process. The latter half of this chapter will give you detailed processes for tracking all your major initiatives, especially your Dream 100 effort. What if, in addition to all the steps, tools, workshops, and insights you have learned in this book, you had one more added advantage? A computer programmed to exclusively focus on seeking out opportunities and generating success for you, even while you sleep. This computer does nothing else all day but look at the world around you, searching for anything and everything that will create more success in every aspect of your life. Sound good? In fact, you do have exactly that kind of computer in your brain. It's called the reticular activating system (RAS). And the problem is that most of us have unknowingly set it to seek out things we don't want, instead of achieving the amazing results we dream about. In this chapter, you will learn what the RAS is and how to harness its power to create success in every area of your business and your life. You will also understand exactly how to set goals and measure effectiveness to put you on the fast track to growth. Finally, you will get a detailed look at the best example I've ever seen of a company using pig-headed discipline and determination to master and execute the twelve competencies you've learned in this book, so it could become the ultimate sales machine. What we think defines who we are. The reticular activating system is that awesome computer in the brain that most of us never use on purpose. Every day we have thousands of thoughts that seem to leap in and out of our minds. The truth is that those thoughts affect every cell in our body. 
Our cells are completely reactive to the environment in which they dwell, and thought is one of the most powerful sources for creating that environment. Some now say that if you are angry, fearful, or anxious when you eat or drink, you literally poison the food you're putting into your body. See the 2004 documentary film What the Bleep Do We Know for more on this. But when you keep your thoughts focused on all the positive things in your life and the positive things you want to happen in your life, you awaken and purposely focus your subconscious to create outstanding improvements on every front. Take a minute and think about the kinds of thoughts you've had today. What has been the predominant tone and character of those thoughts? If you're like most people, your thoughts are dominated by problems and self-criticism. People tend to dwell on what's not working in their lives. And as mentioned before, people bond easily over shared unhappiness, sorrow, or complaints. Listen to the people around you. It's amazing how many times you will hear things like, I hate when that happens, or I'm so out of shape, or I can't do that. The reticular activating system is the attitude programmer of the brain. And its power lies in the fact that the subconscious accepts all you feed it as reality. So if you're telling it you can't do something, guess what? You won't be able to do it. The subconscious cannot make judgments about the thought and say, Oh, she doesn't mean it. Let's do it better this time. It cannot distinguish between a real perception and an imaginary one. So if you perceive you can't do something, you'll probably fail. Worrying has the same impact. If you worry about a problem, your subconscious thinks the problem is what's important to you, and it won't help you find solutions. To find solutions, you have to change your thinking from worrying about the problem to demanding solutions. I've done it a hundred times in seemingly impossible situations. I have even applied this information to how I raise my children. When either of them says anything like, I can't or I'm no good at that, I say, what's that called? They moan, failure reinforcement. One day when my son was learning tennis, he said, I just can't get the hang of that serve. Then he looked at me and caught himself. But I'm getting better every day. They may have moaned and groaned, but in no time they were both seeing the fantastic results that come when you focus your RAS on what you want in your life instead of what you don't. Have you ever heard the saying, fake it till you make it? The reason this works is that by adjusting your attitude, or faking it, as if you had already reached the goal you are trying to achieve, you are tricking your subconscious into creating that success or skill level as a reality. Whatever you tell it over and over again is what it believes, and what it will bring more of into your life. Have the attitude that you already have the success you want, and your subconscious will work to bring about more success in your life. Attitude is the only thing we can control in life, yet it's also the most powerful. You can't control your spouse, your kids, the weather, your co-workers, or the economy. You can try to better understand each of them, but you can't control them. All you can control is your perception and your attitude. The good news is that perception and attitude are all you need to control to achieve your goals and dreams in life and business. How it works. Let's say you're walking through an airport terminal looking for your gate. You've got two hours until your flight, so you're not in a hurry. You're not expecting any calls or anything, just walking along looking for the gate. There are a thousand things going on around you, conversations at various volumes, announcements over the loudspeaker, kids running around and getting yelled at by their parents. You're not paying attention, so you're not hearing any of it. Then suddenly, Joe Smith, pick up the white phone. 
and you go, hey, that's me. That's your reticular activating system screening out everything that won't interest you and then waking you up to something that will interest you. In a crowded airport with thousands of commercial messages and announcements and other distractions, your RAS will tune out everything. Imagine what it would be like walking along or sitting in a restaurant if you couldn't tune out those things that didn't matter to you. You wouldn't even be able to have a conversation or focus on anything. Another example is when you buy a new car. You never noticed that car before, and suddenly you start to see it everywhere. Now that this specific car has become of interest to you, your RAS will pick it out of thousands of cars you see every day. Here's another example. My screenplay has caught the interest of quite a few actresses and recording stars. I would never have even heard of some of these women had they not been interested in making this film. When Leanne Rimes was reading my script to play the lead role, suddenly I couldn't open a magazine or turn on the television without seeing her. Had she not been interested in the film, I would have only noted that she had a hit song or two. But once she was on my radar and my RAS was informed that I was interested in her, I noticed her in hundreds of places. A very efficient machine, the RAS zeroes in on any area of interest. This is whatever is occupying your thoughts, your car, your hobbies, your goals, your success, your limitations, your failures, and so on. If you are constantly thinking about failure, problems, and concerns, your RAS will continually hone in on and bring you more of what you're most interested in. Whether it's failure or success, your RAS will direct the full force of your brain to sort through the clutter and carefully select and guide you to the reality that is consistent with your thoughts. You could be walking down the street thinking that business is bad all over. You look around and see a going out of business sign and think, see, business really is bad. But right next door, there is this huge expansion project with lots of new businesses. Yet you don't even see it because that's not what you're thinking about. The RAS is a powerful device that most of us don't consciously use. Harnessing the Power of the RAS When I go in to help a company that's in trouble, the most powerful thing I do is to get them focused on solutions and setting goals for improving the situation. This shift in focus shows up in the results the company is getting. With everyone devoting at least an hour a week to focusing their RAS on finding solutions and improving the business, solutions begin to appear and the business begins to improve. One way to harness the power of the RAS is to do proactive workshops to get everyone focused on solving the problems instead of focusing on the problems. Strings into Steel The truth is that RAS is already fully functioning in your life, helping to create a reality that is in line with your thoughts. Any statement you make to yourself begins in the unconscious as a thread of an idea. Each time you make a statement, the thread gets thicker. Say it to yourself a few more times, and the thread turns to string, then rope, then bands of steel that absolutely obey the reality you create. We all have programmed beliefs about our limitations. We tell people things like, I can't remember names, I'm a klutz, I can't cook, I can't dance, or I always mess these things up. When we first said them, they were just a tiny thread. But now that we've said them to ourselves and others hundreds or even thousands of times, Imagine how ingrained they've become. We've focused our subconscious on fulfilling our programmed reality of forgetting names, tripping up the stairs or over our dance partner, burning dinner and messing things up. 
But what if you believed that you were great at names, extremely coordinated, and a great cook and dancer, and that success came easily to you? If that were your belief system, what activity would your subconscious be working on right now, creating your success? A shortcut. Keeping your mind focused on your success may be difficult at first, but here's a shortcut to help you make the transition. Your mind is more receptive when it is less busy. Right before you go to bed and right when you wake up, you are at your most receptive. That's the best time to really focus your RAS on all the positive things you want in your life. If you picture yourself succeeding or overcoming something at those times, your brain will grab hold of that much easier. If you are about to have a big meeting, picture it exactly as you want it to go. This visualization will stick with you as you enter that meeting and help create the results you want. It's important to keep your brain working in the present. Tell yourself, it's a great day today, rather than, I will have a great day today. Or, success comes to me easily, rather than, success will come to me easily. This is called auto-suggestion. Phrase your goals and desires as if they already exist, because then your brain will work on fulfilling them faster for you. If you say you will be a billionaire, the brain says, oh, okay, I will do it. That means I don't have to do it right now. Instead, say, I am a billionaire. Then your brain says, oh, wow, I have to make that happen. Have you ever gone to sleep saying to yourself, I have to wake up on time tomorrow, and the next morning you wake up right before the alarm goes off? How did your brain know? Think about that. In addition to the billions of calculations per second that our brain makes, it also has a clock that can tell you exactly when to wake up. Or have you ever said to yourself, I'd better not oversleep tomorrow, but then you did? Note the difference in the way you say things. With, I have to wake up on time tomorrow, all your brain hears is wake up on time tomorrow. Say, I'd better not oversleep tomorrow, and all your brain hears is oversleep tomorrow. So phrasing is important to the subconscious mind. You must state things as if they are already in existence. Tell your RAS exactly what you want and focus on the positive. Thomas Edison, who invented the light bulb, the movie camera, and dozens of other ingenious things, said never go to sleep without a request to your subconscious. You can actually pose something to your subconscious as you go to sleep and wake up with the solution in mind. Napoleon Hill wrote that you should demand that your subconscious give you the solutions or answers that you desire. One way to put your subconscious mind to work for you is to create a recording of your own voice that you listen to every night before you go to bed, feeding proactive affirmations into your subconscious. For twelve years I listened to a tape of my own voice every single night before I went to sleep. I was talking directly to my subconscious, and I played the tape when my mind was most receptive. My income doubled for three years in a row. Exercise. Create an RAS recording of your own voice using whatever technology you have, cassette, digital recorder, and so on. First, use your favorite relaxing background music to play as you record. Then talk yourself through some relaxation exercises. Tell yourself to close your eyes and imagine you are in a calm place, like a peaceful lake, or in a hammock on a sunny day, whatever is a calm image for you. Tell yourself to relax into that scene and breathe deeply. Count back from ten to one, feeling each number relaxing you more and more. This puts your brain into a less active beta mode. 
This also helps you sleep and close down your mind. Next, state a series of affirmations about yourself and your life. These are all positive beliefs about yourself, who you are, and what you want in your life. Just make sure you state them as if they are already a reality, so your brain starts to work on them subconsciously. Here are a few great affirmations for anyone. I attract success. Success comes to me easily. Abundance and prosperity flow to me from every direction. It's easy to be successful. I only think positive thoughts. I'm in perfect health. Sales Affirmations In each of my weekly sales meetings, I make every salesperson repeat after me as I give them various affirmations. One of my favorites for salespeople is, I love to cold call in the morning. When I was a sales rep, I wrote those words on a sheet of paper and put it up on the wall in front of me. I would then say them out loud and with great fun in my voice. If you are in sales or run a sales team, there simply is no better affirmation. Cold calling is the toughest activity for most salespeople. Me? I love to cold call in the morning. I suppose it's from years of repeating that affirmation. Record ten affirmations that are perfect for you. Remember to keep them positive and in the present. Restate them again and again until the tape ends. I have to say that this is the most powerful thing I've done to climb out of my blue-collar upbringing. Once you've created this recording, listen to it just before you go to sleep every night. Yes, my wife made me put on headphones so she wouldn't have to listen, too. Using your RAS in Goal Setting Goals focus your attention and enforce your brain to attract what you want. Most people spend more time planning a vacation than they do planning a life. But setting goals in every aspect of your life and business puts your RAS to work on purpose at attracting great things. This is because the minute you write your goals, you have focused your subconscious on your success, and it immediately begins creating that reality. That's why just the act of writing down your goals can make you feel like you have direction in your life. This becomes even more effective when you post them somewhere so you see them and even say them every morning and every night. I have 27 lifetime goals that are posted on the inside door of my medicine cabinet, so I see them every time I reach for the toothpaste. One day I realized how to put five of them together and accomplish all five with just one action. Had I not looked at that list daily, I never would have connected those dots that way. My subconscious was constantly looking for ways to realize those goals as easily as possible. To get the most out of goal setting, make sure you set incremental goals as well as long-term goals. Your incremental goals should be things that are challenging but that you know you can achieve. This way you make it easier on yourself to stay focused on your success. If you make outrageous goals and never achieve them, then you reinforce your own failure. Goal Writing Workshop Write down the following. Five lifetime goals, five annual goals, Desired annual income for the next five years. Three things you will do each month to improve your life. Three things you will do each month to improve your company or department. Three things you will do each month to improve your performance. Post each of these lists in an appropriate location so that you will see them every day. State them as if they already exist. I make five sales every day. My business grows by X percent every year. Answer these questions to create more goals and focus your attention on creating success. 
What three obtainable things do you want from your business, job? Write them as if you already have them. What three things will you do with your staff every month to make them more effective? What three things will you do to make yourself happier and healthier? How often and when will you do them? Measuring effectiveness, keys to increasing performance. Another way to achieve goals quickly is to measure effectiveness every step of the way. If you are constantly measuring effectiveness, then you will be able to quickly and easily adjust when something is not bringing about your desired result. People respect what you inspect. So when I work with companies, we put all kinds of measurement systems into place. I use one tool that you can duplicate and adapt to specific areas of business where you want to measure the effectiveness of your procedures. This is a sales performance worksheet for a salesperson selling employee benefits and insurance packages to companies. Across the top, it shows how many calls this salesperson made each day. Because he was selling these insurance plans to entire companies, his target contacts were CEOs, CFOs, controllers, and human resources people. On the chart, it lists that he got eight CEOs on the telephone the first day and 26 during the week. He also got 10 CFOs, three controllers, and 29 human resources people on the telephone. But he only got four orientations or appointments scheduled out of the 214 calls he made. It doesn't sound like much, but this form tracked his Dream 100 efforts, so each of the four appointments set were huge companies. Therefore, this was actually a highly successful week. He got 35 people who wanted him to call them back, while 21 people hung up on him or told him flat out that they weren't interested. Then there were 12 times that he couldn't get through the gatekeeper at these huge companies. I included actively looking as a category because every now and then you get someone who is looking for whatever you sell. This salesperson didn't find any of those this week, but when you do, it's a great day. Just changed broker is another important and motivating category to track because those are the ones that you might have gotten if you had called just a few months earlier. Getting appointments wasn't the only objective for this salesperson to achieve with each phone call. As long as you're going to be on the phone with someone and do all this work, you should capture important data to help target this company even better at every turn. So this salesperson asked questions and collected direct dial telephone numbers, email addresses, and direct fax numbers as he went, putting more and more information into the database on his dream clients. The salesperson only got four appointments, but he wasn't going to just give up on everyone who said no or whom he couldn't reach. The next section of the worksheet tracked his follow-up activities. For every single call he made, there should have been a follow-up action. So, for example, we designed a fax to send when someone hung up on him. Remember that breaking through the clutter, even to get hung up on, now gives you a tiny filament of contact. If you immediately fax a note, you've strengthened the filament. So, a fax should go off immediately that says, You just hung up on me, but I don't think you understood the significance of my call, or you would not have done so. Consider this. Pitch again what they'll learn from the orientation. The second largest expense in your company is the cost of employee benefits. I teach nine different ways to reduce those costs, something I'm sure you would find quite valuable. I will contact you again to give you another opportunity to gain this valuable information. Have you ever received a note like that when you hung up on someone? It's things like this that make a salesperson stand out in the crowd.
And if you keep contacting the people who hung up on you, you will eventually win their respect. After all, you can't possibly respect someone who goes away after the first rejection. Why a fax and not an email? Email is too easy to delete. A fax has to be touched and looked at to decide if you want to throw it away. If a fax is short, they'll read it. So keep those faxes short and powerful. There was also a fax for anyone who asked him to call them back. It basically said, Dear Kathy, as you requested when we spoke on the phone today, I will call you back on Friday at 3 p.m. At that time, we will discuss five important ways you can save money on your insurance while still offering your employees the best in health care coverage. Sincerely, Tim. Remember that the hardest part of sales is getting their attention in the first place. So, once you have it, you need to follow up so well they don't have a chance to forget you. Make sure you include follow-up in your tracking efforts. There were other follow-up categories on the worksheet. Fax John Smith. This means to fax an endorsement letter from John Smith. This endorsement letter says how great your information is that you want to present. Fax Delegated. You got the CEO on the phone and he bunted you to the CFO or HR executive. Send a note saying, great speaking to you about the five ways to save money on your company's largest expense, employee benefits. You said you wanted me to talk to Kimberly Bird, so I will contact her immediately. Why would you send a letter like this? If you did an even halfway decent job of selling your offer, the CEO will now pass your note on to Kimberly, and he may even say, Kimberly, this sounded interesting. Now you know that Kimberly is going to pay attention when you call. Fax Promotion This is your standard promotional piece that sells the heck out of the education you want to offer this executive. Fax Confirmation of Orientation How many times have you set a meeting only to have the prospect cool off and cancel or not show? The way to make sure that this doesn't happen is a complete warm-up program to keep that executive interested in the meeting. So first, fax a confirmation that is full of sizzle about how great the meeting's information is going to be. Then, a day later, fax, or email at this point, an endorsement letter from someone else who saw the information you're going to show them. As mentioned, the fill-in-the-blank workshop-for-our-meeting document is a great piece to send. Executives look at the teaser, and if you've done a great job, they'll want to know what they're going to write in those blanks. This single sales performance document is not just a measuring tool, but a management tool. You'll note that this particular salesperson didn't do all the follow-up he should have for the effort he made at the top of the document, so when I received this call sheet, I was able to train and improve the rep's skills based on the data reported. In many companies, you have sales management software that can make assembling these reports easy. But for small companies without such software, this single sheet can track a week's worth of activity with no trouble at all. Five minutes per day is all reps need to record their activity. Contests Another way to measure and increase effectiveness in sales or any other areas of your business is to use contests. My client who has a picture framing business noticed that his best framer was doing two or three times what the other framers were doing. So we took the number that the top framer was doing and added one, and then challenged the rest of the framers to beat his performance. We told them that anybody who hits that number in a day with no damage to any of the products gets a bonus for that day. It immediately increased the performance of the framers. This could be applied to anything. 
Take your top performers and analyze what they are doing. Then procedurize it as much as you can and put a contest in place to give everyone the incentive they need to step up their performance. Henry Ford used a similar tactic, but he didn't even need to create a reward for the increase in productivity. As Napoleon Hill mentioned in Think and Grow Rich, Ford went onto the factory floor with a can of paint and put a large number six in the middle of the floor. When the night workers asked what it meant, he told them that it was the number of cars the day crew built. The next morning he came in and learned that the night crew had built seven cars. He then painted a seven over the six that had been there. When the day crew asked about it, he told them that that was how many cars the night crew had built. Just by playing the day crew off the night crew, he was able to substantially increase productivity for his factory. I am using this same method with a sales team I am working with on cold calling. Every two hours we post in the sales room the number of calls each person has made. Every two hours everyone looks up and sees where they stand in terms of productivity and who is ahead or behind them. This creates a natural competitiveness that is also fun. In one week, this simple act of posting the numbers has tripled the amount of cold calls this team is making. This company even has a software program that gives them this data at the push of a few keystrokes. If you're not measuring effectiveness, your organization's productivity is lower than it could be, and your goals are further away than they need to be. So create performance worksheets, institute contests, and put the numbers up. Then see what happens in your company or department. Firing on all eight cylinders. As you have learned, the key to success is not about doing 4,000 things, but mastering just 12. This book has taken you through the 12 core skill areas that will put you at the top of the market, as long as you continue to perfect and systematize those skills with pig-headed focus. With these steps and your determination, there isn't any problem that you cannot overcome. To illustrate this point, here's an example of an impossible situation that was turned around just by doing the 12 things you have learned in this book. I've told small parts of this story already, but it is the ultimate example of everything you have learned about working together to create amazing results. Billionaire Charlie Munger first hired me to sell advertising for a magazine called California Lawyer. At the time, it was the highest circulating publication for lawyers in that state, but it had only 2% of national advertising market share out of 45 competitors which meant it was all the way down in the number 15 slot. The National Lawyer magazines holding the first four slots had so much of the market that everyone else just got scraps. There were two major challenges I faced in getting national advertisers to advertise with us. First, we were a vertical market publication, meaning we reached only one profession, lawyers. Companies like Xerox, which was front and center in my Dream 100, typically followed a strategy of horizontal marketing. They advertised in magazines like Business Week that had a national circulation reaching business people in all fields. They were already reaching doctors, lawyers, dentists, and zookeepers all over the country, so why would they want to spend a lot of money to go into a vertical market publication? The second biggest challenge was that we were a regional publication. Large companies don't buy advertising in regional vertical publications. Some of those big companies might spend a small part of their budget on vertical markets, doctors, lawyers, architects, etc. 
But they surely weren't going to buy into those vertical markets state by state when one or two national vertical publications reached lawyers or doctors in all fifty states. From a strategy standpoint, it was a sale that simply couldn't be made. In fact, many of these big companies had already decided that specific vertical markets were not worth the trouble. An advertiser that had already decided it was not interested in the lawyer vertical market was definitely not interested in California lawyer, no matter what our unique selling proposition was. I could tell them over and over again that we were the highest circulating magazine for lawyers in California, but was I going to get them to advertise? Never. Clearly, our unique selling proposition would get us nowhere. So I focused all of my efforts on establishing our other ultimate strategic position, USP. Using each of the twelve core skills you've learned in this book, this is how we outthought the pants off the competition. First, we went totally generic and offered a presentation called How to Succeed in the Legal Market, based on all the core story research we had done. The research was amazing. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, lawyers are the largest daily producers of words. They put out more data every day than any other business or profession. This and their high income and profits made them an excellent target for technology companies. So the first part of the sale was not to sell our magazine at all, but rather to educate companies on why they need to be interested in the legal market. But now, even if I were to make the first sale, that of getting large companies to take an interest in the legal field as a fertile, vertical market, my regional publication was not a viable place to advertise. If they went in California alone, what kind of thinking would that be? So the next part of the sale had to give brilliant justification. It had to set the buying criteria. We had all this data on California as the state that leads the nation. At the time, the average state had 18,000 lawyers, while California had 143,000 lawyers. Today, California has more than 200,000 lawyers. Huge difference. California led the nation in cutting-edge legal initiatives and thinking. In fact, more precedent-setting law comes out of California than any other state. One-third of all the nation's largest corporations house their corporate counsel in California. The data went on and on, effectively showing that if you really want to make it in the legal market, first you must have a stronger position in California than anywhere else. And next, you could test the legal market in one state before spending larger dollars to go national. So let's break this down into steps. Step 1. What is your best possible strategic position? In our case, we established our position as part of a market that was super worthy for them to go after. Step 2. Next, we established our position at the top of that market. So they knew that of all the choices they could make to penetrate this market, advertising in our magazine was the most potent. Step 3. We put all this into an educational orientation and made that our first offer to every advertiser. Step 4. We mounted a Dream 100 effort where we started hitting the biggest possible advertisers so hard, so frequently, and with so many approaches and offers that they got to know exactly who we were in a very short period of time. Step 5. I rehearsed the sales staff on that presentation again and again and again. Still, there were those who didn't get the strategy. Wait, why would I do all this when all I really want to do is sell advertising? 
I took these more tactical executives by the hand, brought them to client meetings, and showed them the awesome power of using market data as a motivator. They caught on pretty quickly at that point. Step six. I worked through the time management procedures daily, constantly demanding to-do lists from the staff. Step seven. I trained the staff on the seven steps to every sale in great detail. I gave spot quizzes, did workshops on every step, and hot-seated the reps on specific accounts and their activities related to the seven steps. Step eight: I worked the heck out of the follow-up procedures, putting into place more and more opportunities for bonding and building valuable relationships. Step nine: We worked the trade shows like champions, always being the life of every party and throwing the best parties. Eventually, we started our own trade show for all the advertisers in the industry to come and learn how to market better to attorneys. We designed an award ceremony that celebrated the top executives in the industry and brought them all to a black tie affair in which we controlled every inch of the experience. Step ten: We offered many other additional services that gave us unbreakable bonds with our clients. We had a free placement service to help marketing executives get jobs with other advertisers. We gave the entire market the industry-wide calendar that every company used for its trade show planning. We designed ads for all our advertisers. Step eleven: We set goals for every area of performance. Step twelve: We measured and tracked every activity and had regular contests and rewards for our top performers. I use this as a case study, even though it was fifteen years ago. I don't think my mark remains on this magazine or any of the programs I put into place. It is simply an example of what you can do with a difficult and challenging situation, and it's one in which I personally had the freedom to swing the bat and make all these things happen. It was the ultimate sales machine. We outsold, outmanaged, outstrategized, and outsmarted our competition at every turn. Within one year, we doubled sales. Then we doubled that figure again the second year, and doubled the already twice doubled sales figure in the third year. For this, as I explained in Chapter Six, I was called into Charlie Munger's office to hear these words: "Now, Chet, are you sure we're not lying, cheating, and stealing? In all my years, I've never seen anybody double sales three years in a row." I laughed out loud. "No, Charlie, we're just marketing and selling way better than all our competitors." And the best part is this: none of it was that hard. The key ingredient, my friends, is pig-headed discipline and determination. If you want to have the ultimate sales machine, you merely focus consistently on the twelve skill areas in the twelve chapters of this book. Here's my promise to you: if you make this book your sales, marketing, and management bible and study it again and again. You'll never need to know anything else to rule your market. That and pig-headed determination. What you know has the ability to change somebody's life. Right now, it's being typed into Google thousands of times per second. It's being liked on Facebook. It's being hashtag goals on Instagram. And people are sitting in a classroom paying fifty thousand dollars per year or more to learn just a fraction of what you already know. Now, what if that thing that you love so much didn't have to be just a hobby? What if it was your career, your business? What if people would actually pay you for your advice? You might be the one that could save a marriage, repair a family, change the course of someone's health, 
inspire an idea, expert secrets to help you to find your voice, build a movement, and become your career. Get your free copy of Expert Secrets now because your message matters.